Welcome to Black and Green Podcast, episode 14. I am your host, Kevin Tucker, uh, and it is soon to be September 24th, 2018. Uh, start out real quick with some news. Uh, the Black and Green Podcast now has a new permanent home, which is primalanarchy.org. That is primalanarchy.org. Uh, and all the episodes are up on there now. I will probably stop uploading to archive. Uh, if that is a problem for people, let me know. Uh, otherwise, it's a lot easier to do that. I'll continue to be posting on Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, but having the website, having an individual RSS feed, I believe you can subscribe to, uh, but this automatically loads onto other podcast platforms, so I don't have to upload it so many places, and I don't have to keep shuffling around episodes on soundcloud so that they go on to whatever other loaders things like that uh so there's a lot i want to get into in this episode um and the main theme uh it really comes down to cults and uh cults of personalities and also kind of why we fall into them but before we get into that i wanted to touch on this book that i got today in a pile of stuff for homeschooling uh and it's some uh, a whole bunch of like old garbage kind of uh, school books, but this was one called Explorers, meant for grades four, five, and six, from McDonald Publishing Company in 1991. And this one really caught my eye. Uh, I'll read you the explanation of what it's for. This book provides information about famous explorers of the age of exploration. It describes the accomplishments of the Vikings, Spanish conquistadors, and major French, English, Dutch, and Portuguese explorers. Events are are presented chronologically, so activities are most effective in that order. There's a little note here. This is is the only clarification they have for any of the atrocious shit that's in all of this. Um, We have chosen to use the term Indian in its historic sense to refer to the native inhabitants of North and South America. All good. So... What does it say? Um, it's it's not too surprising. It's a good case against schools. Um, you know, if things like this now, and we know, or we should know, people should be aware. Um, a lot of school books in the in the United States, Texas Board of Education, is the ones who pass which school books tend to go on for public schools, and. Uh, very recently, and it's been going on for a while, just weeding out any talk of slavery and referring to it as um, migratory labor, which is kind of crazy. Uh, it starts out with the Vikings and their, their air quote, discovery of Americas, um, and talking about Leif Erikson and Vinland, which becomes relevant again later in this episode. I wonder if these uh, the other people who were students of these books then just take that shit to heart. Um, talking about Columbus. Um, man. Uh, yeah, this this stuff is pretty awful. Of course, it's talking about what a, a great sailor Columbus was, which, you know, anything about history and even this own story will tell you, well, he, he had no idea what he was doing. Uh, but yeah, so in October, the crew was about to force Columbus to return to Spain when they began to see bits of wood and other signs of land. And what a goddamn shame that they didn't just turn around. Anyways, Columbus believed, or on October 12th, they landed in San Salvador, an island in the Bahamas. Columbus believed the island was part of the Indies, so he named the people living there Indians. 
Eventually, this name was used to refer to the people, to all native people of North and South America. And so the activities are where this thing really shines. Uh, and the activity for the Columbus one is Columbus seeks support. Imagine that you were Christopher Columbus. Write a petition to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel asking for funds to support your exploration. Your petition should tell why you are making the voyage, what supplies you need, and how the voyage will benefit Spain. Make a petition as convincing as possible. Granted, you know, we, we all know the story. This is the entire thing. Kids are going to be writing it as to say, it's like, oh, we're going to make this great discovery uh, that he, he didn't know he was going to make. And also not a uh, discovery. So uh, the, the other parts of this thing that get insane are the way that the activities associated with each one of these little bullshit write-ups is. Uh, so Magellan has a uh, crossword puzzle. Uh and then there's there's questions that go with each. Uh, there's a true or false that goes with uh, Vasco Nunez de Balboa. And uh, let's see, number of events for Cabez de Vaca. You get to name the current states uh, that were colonized by Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Uh, the, well, I'll get to that one in a second. There's a word scramble for Samuel de Champlain which is just insane. Uh, but the, the worst is there's a conquistador puzzle. And so there are 20 questions uh, to to answer, uh, to fill out these words. But the the vertical words that you go by, so you know what how many letters there are and everything like that, and when you get one letter as a clue, uh, spells out Spanish conquistadors. Cool, guys. Very cool. Uh, so yeah, this is what they teach in schools and it's easy to forget that when you've been out of school for a long time, but holy shit. Um, let's see, I'll just read through some of the questions that are the response part. You just take my word for it that the actual write-ups are about two, three, four paragraphs each. Why was Conquistador a good name for the men who seized parts of North and South America? What advantages did the Conquistadors have in battles against the South American Indians? How might the actions of the conquistadors long ago have affected present culture in South America? You know, this shit that kids in school in America were really thinking about and really able to understand. Speaking of, when we get to Cortez. Was Cortez's trip to Mexico in 1519 successful? Why or why not? And this one might be my favorite out of the whole thing. Why are some Indians in Mexico willing to aid Cortez in conquering the Aztecs? Way to go. And uh, there was at least one more I want to get to. Uh, what heart ex- what exploration hardships did La Salle and his men endure during their voyage in 1668? And my f- second favorite, what characteristics do you think a good explorer has? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's shit like that. You know that this stuff is out there. You know this is what's going on. You've Most of us, most people listening to this have been indoctrinated with this kind of shit in school and uh, have seen it all before. It's not really a mystery. It's not really anything new or surprising, but it is good every now and then when you get really involved in understanding more about what actually happened and what actually is going on in history, what actually was driven by geopolitics and uh, the nature of the expansive nature of civilization itself. It's good to remind yourself that, holy shit, like what it takes to 
really teach indoctrinate and to keep anybody involved in, in the day-to-day activities that are 100% the result of and also the processing of all of these past events and all this history that genuinely isn't isn't gone in any way and is still perpetuated just to keep things going. Uh, it's not an easy process. This is constant force. This is why we talk about domestication as a process rather than an event. It didn't just happen and goes away. It's not like you get sent to school and learn math and that's good enough. It's It's this constant reduction of the world and just kind of oppositional relationship with the world as a whole and this superficial undermining at every level even in the context of how questions are being framed that it's just like you know well slaves were migrant labor or well indians helped colonize the the world which is which is not to say that in well in the case of the colonization that this isn't true uh but you know there's there's a lot to that and if this is your only exposure to understanding uh, the politics or the lack thereof between and amongst indigenous societies or horticultural societies and agrarian societies and pastoral societies, uh, less less complex and less technologically inclined societies, uh, then yeah, that's, that's a, a whole lot you are absolutely missing. And that is by design. That is part of the process. That is the whole understanding. And you see this at play. Uh, and it's it's a huge issue with entitlement in general, um, and we're talking about civilization. We're talking about what it is we we feel that we are we are meant to have or we are meant to be capable of. That we kind of keep coming back to this whole this whole bullshit road, this whole kind of ongoing process, this ongoing kind of thing where it's just like, well, everything is fucked. So, you know, just just do you just. Be you do your thing. Don't worry about the rest of the world. Don't worry about what's going on. Uh, just, you know, we're all broken. So be the best broken you that you can be. So that is a good jumping board for everything else I want to talk about tonight. And, uh, it comes down to, um, or a lot of the stuff I should say, uh, a good friend of mine, somebody listens to the podcast a lot, recommended I listen to this, this ongoing CBC series called escaping Navixum, it's N-X-I-V-M, which is a Ponzi uh, Ponzi scheme cult, uh, not unlike a lot of the guru kind of stuff. And I, I've talked about this stuff a little bit before. Um, I've talked about, you know, just kind of the, the guru complex and the cult kind of complex you get behind. Uh, I don't even know what episode it was, but I, would, I had a bit of a rant about Derek Jensen and Daniel Vitalis and some of these kind of personalities that come up even even within this realm, even with the realm supposedly of being anti-civilization or pro-wildness, uh, and we're going to get back to more of that stuff tonight, but, you know, this, this stuff is far more prevalent in society than we want to believe, and you want to kind of look at the cult stuff and, and put it away and be like, okay, well, yeah, that shit's obviously crazy, and you can look at Scientologists, you can look at, I mean, this cult, you can, there's a wild wild country uh documentary there's there's all kinds of i mean especially with the podcast explosions and things like that there's there's no shortage of chance to listen to explorations of these things that are supposed to be upheld as fantastic and kind of just the complete extreme where people are in in the case of Nixium or Nixium, um branded sex cult kind of thing it's it's totally crazy and it's it's absolutely insane but it's meant to look like the anomaly. 
and the the way that we can or the reason we can't really see the relevance of all of it is because we do treat it as an anomaly rather than seeing how this operates in light of how something like the Catholic Church operates. Uh, which is, you know, so again, we'll get we'll get into more very, very quickly. Uh, but I, I think it's important, and I want to draw out at the very beginning here before I really get into all this stuff, that the entire point of focusing on this stuff is to show that it is far more prevalent and far more based on the domestication process as a whole or how this society operates as a whole, but most importantly, how domestication breaks people on an individual level and stunts them so that they aren't able to fully develop and it makes it easier and makes us more prone and more prevalent to have these kind of parasitic vultures come in and fill that void and to, of course, get a lot of money, get a lot of sex, get a lot of fame, get a lot of notoriety out of the entire thing. And when you step back, it becomes really obvious. But what what about any of this shit is any different than the Catholic Church? What about is any different from really any church? Uh, any kind of cult thing that builds up around all the politicians? And I'm... I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories. I'm not going to go down the road on all that shit. You know, if you know anything about these people to be somebody who wants power, you've got to be pretty fucked up to begin with. Uh, you know, you can see it on the micro scale with every cop that's out there, all the people in the military that are on the front line uh, in other parts of the world who just act with indiscretion. Uh, all these different levels, you can see how these things play out. And there's, there is a difference between that kind of power and the kind of power that is implicit in the state and its apparatus. But the microcosm of that is is at play all the time, and sometimes it's just more extreme than others, and sometimes it's more normalized than others, which is why we don't talk about, or a lot of people don't talk about the Catholic Church despite insane changes and insane things that have come out and happened within the last 10, 20 years uh, in terms of, the changing of the guard and the supposed like, you know, liberation theology thing that's supposed to be going on with the current Pope. But the, the entire structure is still there. And as much as they want to talk about it and try and own it, uh, you know, the, the rampantness of pedophilia and just the entire predatory nature of how all of that operated, you know, I mean, this is, this is longstanding stuff. It's not a secret. It shouldn't be a secret. It's not a mystery. You can see where it's at, and you just know that it, because these people were predatory, because they prayed, we view that as different than a cult, or we view that as is different from you know this this crazy kind of case of this uh, this Keith dude from this Nixum or Nixvium uh, bullshit, and you know they're like, well, he wears a scarf, so he's kind of just an eccentric guy. It's like, look at look at the wardrobe that the Catholic Church has, uh, and the Nixvium. Six of them. I want to say it different every time. Just settle. Just deal with it. Um, but according to the website, which is still up, um, even though the the two main people are an actress, Allison Mack. There's there's a funder that is involved in all this stuff. It's it's worth listening to the podcast that that series that escaping six of them, whatever. Um, because you know it is crazy and it's it's well done, uh, but. You know, there, there's a whole story that's or going on right now, and this uh, uh, Keith guy and uh, this actress, Alice Mack, are being arrested and facing charges right now for uh, sex trafficking and things like that, and this running this Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe what any of this stuff really is, but I'll read the brief description, and it'll be immediately apparent why I hate these people. Um, 
But the uh, Ixavum is a company whose mission is to raise human awareness, foster an ethical humanitarian civilization, and celebrate what it means to be human. And it's not a standard guru fair, this kind of self-help bullshit, where, you know, it's just like, be the best you you can be, and the best you you can be is broken and subservient and paying a ton of money to go to these seminars that are supposed to make you feel empowered uh, in a way that makes you feel like you're owning your choice to continue going to seminars and selling other people on. And it's a very unique kind of thing. And the, the main guy behind this is Keith guy. Uh, he, he had a, a thing in the eighties, another version of it. it was called consumer byline. And frankly, even how all that worked, I, I don't know. It seems like some kind of like mail order Ponzi scheme. Um, not not too far off from like things like Mary Kay and and all these uh, Vitamix kind of circles go. All the nutrient stuff goes where you get people to buy a bunch of stuff and then they have to sell it and then the payments go up like such as a Ponzi scheme. Um, and this, I think they were selling electronics and things, and that turned over to this uh, whatever whatever this is now, where instead of selling products, they're selling programs, and those programs are meant to make you better, and you're supposed to get people signed up to go underneath you and then you make money from everybody who signs up underneath you as you keep going through the enrollment process. And of course, of course there's stages. Come on. What would this be? What would a cult be if we didn't have stages? And in this case, uh, the stages are determined by the color of your sash, your sash. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, again, I need this stuff. If you look at it together, you look at it at any distance, it's, it's obvious. I mean, it's completely, Complete and utter bullshit. But, you know, the big question, why does anybody fall for it, is the one that is I'm going to discuss here shortly, but I think that at the outset it's important for me to say this isn't just about some cult. This isn't just some kind of like morbid fascination with this institution that doesn't make any sense or is an anomaly. This stuff does have a role to play within the world at large and the way that we function it and it parasitizes um you know the very predatory nature of of domestication as a whole and feeds off of it and you know these are bottom feeders uh but we can say that just because they're not as successful as some of these larger more long-standing institutions so to kick off here i want to do a little reading um from an essay of mine called society without strangers this is this was originally in black and green review number four uh, and it's also in my book, Gathered Remains, which you can get at blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, so just, you know, the essay is talking about, about violence and uh, civilization and the roles for conflict resolution within hunter-gatherer societies and horticultural societies uh, and how we have gotten into the mess we have where violence becomes the defining factor of our own lives, whether or not we're we're willing to acknowledge or whether or not we actually have to see any of it. So this is a little section about the breaking part. This is a society of strangers, individuals wound up lost and hurting who are willing to externalize their own inner turmoil. A place where once healthy individuals seeking comfort through fluid movement and affiliation are left without recourse for a shattered process of personal growth and cognitive development. This is a scourge of domestication. Neotony, as Paul Shepard explains, is the process of stunting our development into fully aware and active beings that is into individuals capable of maintaining communities. This process of severing the competency of a capable adult is no accident. This is a need for agrarian societies. Quote, Politically, agriculture required a society compo- composed of members with the acumen of children. 
Empirically, it is set about amputating and replacing certain signals and experiences central to early epigenesis. Agriculture not only infantilized animals by domestication, but exploited the infantile human traits of the normal individual in the otony, end quote. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is said to impact 7.8% of adults in the United States. It is two times more prevalent among women than men. Because of technology, we can suffer historically unique forms of brutality. As we suffer alone, without a cultural preemption or recognition of that probability, it is not surprising that one of the wealthiest nations has such a high rate of PTSD. Considering our refusal to acknowledge the possibility of infant mortality and the silencing of women's voices through patriarchy, the disparity between men and women having PTSD should hardly be surprising. Surely, as nomadic foragers, our brains were built to withstand stressful situations. Life in the wild may not always be nasty, brutish, and short, but that doesn't make it stress-free either. Infant mortality is a looming tragedy, but it is not alone. There are a lot of ways of harsh ways to die living in the wild outside of homicide. Falling from trees while collecting honey, being bitten by snakes, being attacked by predators, facing periods of hunger and weather extremes. Most of the situations are not necessarily lethal, but, by and large, nomadic foragers aren't suffering from PTSD, even though they may have likely have dealt with a number of these situations. I believe the difference comes down to the acceptance and acknowledgement of things that can happen. If the community is aware and capable of mitigating those tensions and possible sources of stress, then they need not become traumatic. No one suffers alone. But the civilized do. We become lost in our trials and tribulations, left to reiterate them or to refuse to cope with them in the dance of neoteny. We become strangers, more mere neighbors, a concept that, prior to domestication, had no significance, no social meaning. And this permits us to both perpetuate and permit systemic violence. This allows us to remove our sense of responsibility from the world and each other. It keeps us from giving children the space to explore boundaries and find themselves among friends. It keeps us from seeing and believing the violence of the state. With 7.5 billion people, we have created 7.5 billion variations of how the domestication process has fucked with our minds. We all create our uniqueness through how we have endured as individuals, dependent upon the law to control and mitigate our unresolved conflicts. We give away our ability to become self-sufficient, both physically and cognitively. As Stanley Diamond stated, schizophrenia is the process through which the inadequacy of the culture is concretized in the consciousness of individuals. We become fractured. Our punishment becomes self-propagating. Diamond continues, The development of the early civilizations as instruments of oppression was a result, not of some environmental or technical imperative, but of the new possibilities of power which men in certain positions found it necessary to cultivate and legitimate. Domestication is about dependency, and that is what we are, dependence of the custodial state. Each of us is born to be a child of the forest and becomes a child of the machine through indoctrination. Our own pain becomes a justification for pushing further and further into the depths of the mechanisms of the state. And as the power to respond and resolve is taken from our hands, it is given directly to the state. The unresolved, unreconciled tension of existence tightens the shackles. So again, that is from Society Without Strangers, which is in my book, Gathered Remains. And so obviously a bit of a caveat here. So uh, that describes, you know, obviously giving over power to the state and the role that the state and civilization has uh, in terms of domestication. But there there is an, a nuance here when it comes to the particular kind of cultish guru leader or, you know, whatever 
the the church or something like that is um it it is slightly different from the state but it is a necessary output of it and the problem is is that uh and i say this a lot through the writings i say this a lot through the podcast but it's always worth reiterating um and i think that being a hunter gatherer night it's it's demonstrable is the nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle was what created our, our human nature. It is who we are. It is how we relate to the world, how we see on um, ecological, psychological, physiological level, how we interact with the world was built by being nomadic hunter-gatherers. And it works really well that this was a state of primal anarchy, that this wasn't about you know uh, an ideology or about enforcing any kind of ideals or any kind of, you know, nobody read a book on it and said, how do we do it? It just, it functions. And the way it functions is by understanding things aren't always good. And there's, there's a lot of room for healing, a lot of room for being vulnerability, but most importantly, a lot of room to just be able to move. And by being self-sufficient, you can go from one camp to another. There's not a tribal identity within no matter how gather societies, like there is amongst horticulturalists and there is amongst definitely amongst agrarians and most certainly um, exploited as kind of like a hyper-nationalist identity in agrarian societies and civilizations that are, you know, constantly having to beat the drum to say, this is who we are. Uh, so we, we don't focus on, you know, what, what we're missing or what we aren't. But a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of anti-capitalist kind of um, ideas tend to build around the idea that, you know, capitalists are just really smart and really capable of creating all these wants and needs out of nowhere. And I don't see it that way uh, at all. They're not that smart. They're not that good. They're not that talented. What ends up happening is, is that these are needs that we have on an individual and on a community level. And this is why we're drawn to each other. Uh, But you know, they, they've have just torn that apart and rechanneled it. And that's how we end up getting so much done through the state or we end up getting so much done because of our contribution to production or whatever it is that happens in, within civilization and in whatever form it is. But there's still this gap. And that's typically where religion comes in. That's typically where ideology comes in. That's typically where ideals and, and everything else that is supposed to give some kind of meaning falls in. And that's exactly where uh, the guru complex lives. Uh, and so in, in kind of anthropological terms, uh, there is kind of a, a, a predecessor here. Uh, if you look at power when it starts to become possible in horticultural societies, that's like a, a hunter-gardener uh, a society that does have surplus, then you have what you call a, a big man role. And the, the big man has influence, but doesn't have power. They're just, you know, they're, they're capable of creating more surplus. They typically have more than one, um, and typically it's men and typically it's more than one wife, but they've, they've been able to amass some kind of leverage, um, that makes it possible for them to have more, more say or more sway within that society. But they can't ever just tell people, Hey, you need to defend me. It's more of this kind of, you know, influential role than than power. Uh, and I apologize, I'm looking for a quote here. Uh, Marshall Sounds is an anthropologist, read this as a poor man, rich man, big man, chief, uh, which was w- within anthropology, within hunter-gatherer studies, and follow-up to hunter-gatherer studies is always kind of a, a really good short essay on explaining that role. Uh, 
and he makes it kind of clear it's about Polynesian societies, which is where he did a lot of focus on. And these Polynesian chiefs did not make their positions in society. They were instilled in societal positions. So it's kind of reminding that's the difference between like the role that a guru has or a role that a, a big man might have and the role of a, a chief or the state, which is that, you know, in those cases, it is a concrete thing. It is power in a very explicit form. Uh, and then, you know, the big man kind of rides the, the line between. Uh, so what what a big man must do is so a man was quoting from Solon's. So a man must be prepared to demonstrate that he possesses the kinds of skills that command respect, magical powers, gardening prowess, mastery of oratory or oratorical style, perhaps bravery in war or in feud. So that is an important point, and it's as minor of a quote as that is, or minor of a point that might seem to be. The role of the guru fills a very interesting kind of niche between uh, the domesticated societies on a smaller kind of tribal level and then civilizations on a massive scale. So from a contemporary or capitalist perspective or something like that, the guru fills a, a need or a hold, not, not really need, fills in four needs in this this kind of strange cross-section between state power and capitalist proxies and capitalist kind of roles. And um, yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, is that, that that's that's a created circumstance and it goes back to Neotony and that's why I think it's it's a really important concept and I, I know it's not talked about a lot and even when I explain it, I tend to have to explain it again and again. Um, and it, it's because we see the world in this really kind of dualistic way where uh, either, you know, you want this kind of communalistic thing or you want the the individualist ego uh, kind of thing and, and the nature of our world is to speak about the group and speak about, you know, the progress we've made as a civilization or whatever that, you know, kind of shit comes out in that regard, but also to say like, well, you do this because it's good for you. You do this because you get benefits from it because you're going to gain some positivity from it. And for religion that comes in the form of, you know, you're going to do your good deeds and then your payoff is heaven or you know Valhalla or whatever. Uh, and in the, in the more kind of like literal capitalist vein, it's like if you just do your hard work, then there's payoff in the terms, in the form of money, in the forms of power, in the forms of prestige, or if not for you, then for your children. And those options are presented in the places where, you know, you you feel like you're having to make a choice or you're moved a bit from the means of production, um, as most of us are in, in this kind of post-consumer or uh, post-industrial consumer society, a global society. But at its base, this is what social domestication means. And there's different forms of domestication. I go over this a lot in writing, and I'm probably going to have to repeat it a lot on the podcast, and I know I have already, uh, and I'll do it again. So uh, you, you have two forms of domestication. One is domestication of plants and animals, which is a biological thing. We're breeding for specific traits. Typically, that has been seen as kind of like a damning one-way thing. Like you breed... Uh, an animal to become subservient and have at least characteristics. And that's just that uh, I've, I've worked with a lot of animals. I've been around a lot of animals and, you know, really the only species that is going to stay in its cage when given the chance is right now a human. And of course all that's circumstantial. Uh, but you know, the idea that that domestication or that this kind of genetic tainting 
you know, means that you're not going to resist or not going to try to live or go feral. You know, that's all kind of, kind of horseshit. Um, but it, regardless, that is that is one form of domestication. In most cases, that is what we're talking about in a very literal sense of like being bred by force. Uh, and the social domestication is something that's entirely different. There's nothing different uh, psychologically or physiologically about humans in civilization or humans in a nomadic hunter-gatherer society. We're all still born of that same evolutionary line. And we all see the world in the same ways. We all interact with the world in the same ways, which is why it's so easy for domesticators to tear apart what we need from each other, what we need from community, and then try and, you know, run it through all these different, these different means and these, you know, through production and through church and through state, uh, and gurus can pick up the rest. But, you know, it's, it just comes down to continually breaking us down and reminding us of what we can be through, through the system or what we're supposed to be through the system. Um, and in the case of, you know, on the frontier in the case of, uh, you know, areas where there's sweatshops areas where there's just complete like third world poverty that's causing people to work in these massive factories or logging operations, poaching and things like that, that we don't really want to discuss in our day to day life you know, the, the flip side of that is to create circumstances where there is no choice. And in that case, it kind of runs domestication along the line, somewhere between just being captive and being captive to circumstance and just complete and utter force. Uh, and of course, you know, in that case, there is no physical change aside from the changes made to the land and the changes made to physically undermine our, and uh, emotionally and socially undermine everything about cultures that actually do function already to replace them with the broken one we need. And so that's where neoteny plays in. Uh, it's about breaking people. It's about the domestication process and recognizing that there is this kind of chasm between the individual and community. Um, and it's not as complicated as we want to make it be. And it's because we have this really kind of weird sense of self and this weird sense of obligation that's, that's, kind of put on us and conditioned into us that people tend to react to or tend to respond to. Uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, technology and instant gratification through shopping and, and mass consumerism and online shopping and social media all really kind of fill that void with this whole, just, just be you. You're okay. You're special. You know, this isn't about some future thing. You are unique and you deserve everything that you've ever wanted. And that's what happens through all those platforms, those programs. But on a large scale, you know, the, the core of it is the same, regardless of how it comes out. This is, this is where the baseline is at. Civilization needs us to be broken. That is the basis of how civilization works. And whether that's by force, whether that's by complete reduction of op- options, whether that's by wiping out every hunter-gatherer society that exists so we can't even find out that there is another option, that there is another way of existing and interacting with the world that is far healthier and not uh, prone to extinctions. Um, Those things have to be weeded out and controlled and and minimized or completely subsidized, which is why, you know, grades four, five, and six are learning about explorers and asking questions about, well, you know, what were what the benefits for the indigenous people about what the colonizers were doing? Maybe they could have been nicer, but 
you know, they meant well. They were explorers. That's just doing what explorers do. Sometimes you kill a population, but they found land. They found some things to do. So the process of becoming an individual, the process of becoming somebody who isn't self-loathing and self-hating and able to just live within this constant misery that civilization produces in this endless stream of just brokenness is to recognize that who we are as individuals or who an individual is within a hunter-gatherer society is built around exploration. And this comes back to the way that children are raised. This comes back to the way that societies function. And kids are given a ton of room and kids are meant to learn with each other and not to be given restraints. Uh, And in pretty much every regard, you know, the whole idea of the self is this process of, of discovery through the group or discovery through things that you do with other people and through movement and through place. So a child in a hunter-gatherer society starts mimicking their parents in terms of foraging and in terms of hunting at very early ages. They're given a lot of trust and a lot of room, but mostly they're given a lot of love and affection and care and constantly being carried around for the first three or four years because they're constantly nursing. There's no alternative to nursing in these societies or to breast milk until an older age. And it, it creates a situation when this is the part that's probably hardest to understand for us, which is really fucked up is that it creates a situation where you don't have to sit here and second guess your relationship to people and your relationship to the world. You don't need to be constantly told that you have value. You just know you do. Somebody cares for you. People love you. People are around you and people have this relationship with you that's based off of mutual respect and based off the idea that, well, you know, you know all these things. You don't have to spend your life searching these existential questions to try and figure out what role you have in the world or what meaning you might have in the world. You just know. You don't You don't have the kind of crisis that we've created. And as, as I mentioned in that reading, as I mentioned in that essay, Society Without Strangers, it's not that things go smoothly all the time. Or it's not that there's never trials or there's never tribulations. And it's just that within the way that these societies function and within the ingenuity of nomadism of, of being mobile and constantly being able to move and switch camps and things like that is implicit. This idea that like, you know, if it doesn't work, then you can just move on. You can, you can change your situation. There's confidence in it. There's not overarching needs to belong to a group or to belong to a tribal identity or an identity built around any one place at a time. You can just do this. You don't have to apologize to everybody. You don't have to live in a situation that doesn't work. You don't have to, and this is important, you don't have to hide how you feel about things. You just have to be able to process it. And sometimes that means that you just got to move on. And sometimes it means there's an argument and it goes. And sometimes it means there's an argument and it's a fight. That's just how things work. But we don't give any room for that. We don't, by definition, allow within a sedentary society, within a settled agrarian civilized society, the space is just say, you know, you don't like your neighbors. Okay. You can move. And you know, you don't search for an apartment or buy a house and sit there and talk to your neighbors forever. You know, we, we create and perpetuate all these situations where you have no choice or we have the belief that as long as you're involved in these systems and, you know, again, we believe these are the only systems that exist that you have a choice in every decision that you make 
and that all these other things about getting along with people or not getting along with other people are inconsequential or or not even an issue but obviously they are an issue um so we're that's just one piece of this puzzle and the reality of it is is that like i said there there's there's seven and a half billion people on the planet there's seven and a half billion ways that civilization can can impact us as individuals uh by disrupting that process by having a context that we exist within and by having ways of actually handling our own sufficiency and ways of handling our own relationships that that is meaningful and does actually matter and then it just kind of dumps it all into this thing it's like well here's here's the mess you figure it out and the way that we deal with that is fucking awful i mean it's horrible the entire idea of therapy I mean, it's, and I'm not, I'm not trying to rip on people who, who go to it. And I understand there's cathartic aspects of it, but the entire idea of it is to solve who you are, solve problems that you have by isolating you and pulling you into a room with another person. And you just get to air it. And the catharsis is supposed to be coming through airing it. And even when you get down to a 12 step program and stuff like that, whenever you get to the point where you're supposed to apologize to people and make amends, it's really just another way of saying like, Hey, look, I'm aware I have this problem and I'm apologize for what I have done because of this problem with you. Uh, you know, there's, there's this very specific way that we handle everything where it all just comes down to the individual and it just ensures that you either stay broken or that your means of, of being able to assert yourself exists solely within those options that the state or civilization has at hand. And that leaves a lot of room. That leaves a lot of mess and it leaves a whole lot of issues that remain unresolved because the essential core of this thing is, you know, there is a curing power of just being able to talk and deal with other people. Uh, there's another essay in the book, Gather Remains, that, and it's a huge underlying basis for things that I, I bring up quite often in my writing and on the podcast is the importance of healing in um, in this hunter-gatherer societies and in, in any indigenous society in some form. But uh, the the idea of a trance dance or of this healing dance is really just, you know, about getting to an ecstatic state with a group of people. You physically put your hands on other people. You touch other people. You sing and dance around, uh, typically around a fire, sometimes not, uh, depending on the society. Uh, but just exerting yourself in this really mindless kind of matter. And it's not that I'm not saying mindless isn't like stupid, but it's like you get out of your head, like through all, all the walls that we put up, all the barriers that we put up in this moment are gone and you can just be vulnerable and just reduce yourself through, through exhaustion and exertion to this really kind of like primal ooze where it's just like, all I need right now is to just get my frustrations out and do it with these other people and then feel they're doing the same thing. And there's, you know, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of science behind it. I mean, there's all kinds of reality behind it. And, you know, to be in that state with people that you care about and trust, it's pretty fucking rad. I mean, it's a pretty powerful thing. And I mean, I think it's an important part for healing. But it says so much that these societies function on such a, an intrinsic level. And it, again, not because they're perfect, not because the people within them are, are, you know, somehow better than anybody else, but just because they're willing to accept this basic premise and this basic principle that sometimes life fucking hurts. 
sometimes life gets really complicated and sometimes things happen that are hard to process or hard to understand. And the way that you deal with that is by being able to move and being able to mend those ties. These are all forms of conflict resolution. If you want to break it down to like really just, you know, what, how society functions or whatever, but on, on a human level, on this social animal level, it just comes down to being vulnerable with people and being able to air it all out or just lit it all out together and work through it together. But the crazy thing about this is the more that I work on it, the more I focus on it, the harder it gets to, to kind of keep coming back to this fact. These societies were functioning. And at the point which any anthropologist or any historian or any missionary, anybody who was ever interacting with most of these societies was already obviously past the point of contact. And anytime contact increases, anytime roads are built, anytime government intrusion or industry can, can um involvement or pursuit or, or just expansion happens in those regions and all the kind of terrific cascades of, of consequences, the ecological consequences that come with that and the social consequences that come with having missionaries come in to just, you know, tighten the grasp on every single thing that it means to be human and how these societies function. Uh, they, they turn to these healing trances more. They've used them more as an outlet and they still function. They still worked. Uh, but, even in those times, you know, you could, the anthropologist or anybody else looking at it and even the testimony of, of any hunter-gatherer that was talking to people about it would say that in times of tension, they did more of the healing dances. But even on the whole, even when things weren't bad, you know, this is still something that happened all the time. These are societies that function exceptionally well. And again, they don't need to be perfect. They just functioned. They understood their place in the world they still did these healing dances, these healing trances, often, sometimes multiple times for weeks, sometimes multiple times per month. And if their societies had so much figured out and, and had this amazing thing at hand and they still used it, what the fuck does it say about us? Like, we, we have none of this. None at all. We have ritual purgings in the form of, of complacency and kind of like this rally mentality. And uh, Barbara Ehrenreich is an awesome writer. She's written a lot of really great stuff. I'm not saying I'm 100% on board with any of it, but she had wrote this book called Dancing in the Streets, which is really good. Um, and it talks about kind of like a history of ecstatic states uh, and the power of, of the hunter-gatherer ecstatic state, this, this trance ritual, as kind of the baseline for human existence and how again, she, she, she and I see things in a similar way on a, on a number of levels and kind of working from hunter gatherers up, up through the ladder here of history and, uh, civilization just making everything worse. So in seeing how various aspects get channeled, uh, you know, the, one of the correlations she would draw to would be like the way that this gets channeled is through sporting events and through mega churches, which it does. It kind of creates this whole spectacle and you go through the motions of this, massive massive kind of emotional or just whatever release and you get to give it a flavor you get to give it a, a team or whatever it is that you're rooting for you get to go through the ritual of it without having any of these these kind of like healing powers it just gives you something that's a distraction and that's where a lot of this guru stuff really kind of comes in and that's where it really hits home and it's not just like oh uh, well I'm I'm smart enough not to fall for this shit. I'm smart enough not to to go for any of this stuff. There are 
reflections and mirrors of these kind of personalities and these kinds of traps all throughout civilization. And they're far more prevalent than we know. And if you dig on any of the kind of current trends or anything that you, you feel some kind of connection to, it's not very hard to come into these moments where you find this guru kind of personality at the bottom of it. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again that there, there are things that happen in this world that, and there's, there's these moments where you kind of feel like, okay, people are getting it. Uh, you know, okay, this idea is really kind of grasping on and a kind of a huge example of it is, is something like paleo. Uh, the baseline of paleo is you are healthier as a hunter gatherer than you are within you know, the standard American diet or, or within civilization. That's a really fucking powerful thing to understand. That's a huge acknowledgement coming from the society, even, even in America now where we, we still innately believe in progress. We still innately believe that things have gotten better. And as much of a fucking douchebag as Steven Pinker is, or somebody like that is, you know, the, that narrative that he's spitting, the idea that society has gotten less violent with civilization than, you know, as a hunter gatherer, that, or as, as hunter gatherers, you know, that stuff actually has grounding. That is the baseline of how we see the world. That is how we've been trained to see the world. And in, you know, a grade four, five, six book on explorers is just a reiteration of that. So when you see something like this, when you see something like paleo or even, even some simple or stupid, like, uh, you know, some of the, the ideas and patterns behind CrossFit in terms of like human movement and move uh, and barefoot running, you know, kind of simple, simple things, even like that. Uh, there is kind of this powerful core to say like, okay, I get this. Like there is, there's this understanding within here being like, okay, well, it's a pretty fucking radical thought to recognize we had this right. We had this figured out before and now we're kind of catching glimpses of it. And the, uh, the upside of it is that, you know, it's not too far off from a lot of anarchists, primal anarchists, uh, anarcho primitivist thinking, and, you know, even my work or John Zerzan's work to say, it's like, this is still who you are. You are still a hunter-gatherer. You still exist in the world as a hunter-gatherer. We've just been trained continually to not see that and to kind of recreate these situations where we don't see that. So the closer it gets to that understanding and then just gets dumped off into this massive consumer trend or whatever. And these, these kind of cartoonish ideas about, you know, within paleo, there's super cartoonish ideas about what any of this stuff means. And you can buy uh, branded paleo nutrition bars that have fucking chocolate chips in them and shit. Uh, you know, people just kind of like take it as a baseline and then they want to be sold a story. They want to be sold something or they don't want to be sold this. They're just willing to take it because it's the most readily available thing. And it has some meaning. It has some semblance of like, okay, I get this. And it makes sense because within me, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of anger. I don't understand how the world functions the way it is. And I don't feel right to feel the way I do. I don't feel right to be depressed about how I see the world. And there's parts of many of us that just kind of look at that as like, personal failings and, and how have I not achieved myself or how have I not, uh, you know, been able to manifest a situation where I should be happy. Uh, I have the stuff that I've was told I was supposed to have. I have the debt that I was told was okay to have. I have all of these things. I don't like any of it. And uh, you know, that's why it's, 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 it's no mystery. I mean, when we're talking about, uh, 
depression. We're talking about rising suicide rates. We're talking about uh, just overall misery. And the reason that people are even dumping into things like social media is because we want this human connection. And we want to feel like we're in a place where we don't need to be constantly validated. And we want to be able to feel like we are a part of something. And none of the alternatives and none of the options that we're given are capable of really doing that without channeling it into this thing. It's like, well, find yourself within this. And on that level, the guru complex is far more prevalent than we want to believe. And we don't want to see it mirrored in every corporate relationship. We don't want to see it mirrored in the, our relationship with the media, with any any kind of mass uh, outlet for even talking about how, how the world functions. But it's it's there throughout all of it. And it works for that same reason that domestication works. We are broken. And because of that, we're constantly searching for something and we were willing to take anything that comes in its place. And it, there's, there's variations, there's degrees. I mean, there's all kinds of follow-ups to that particular thought. But the reality of it is, is as weird as some of this stuff might look, it's far more prevalent than we want to believe. And just to give some kind of examples here, uh, it, it doesn't take much digging to find all this shit. So, uh, yoga, for example, is, is one thing where, you know, a lot of people just like this, this is the thing I relate to. It's this kind of ancient tradition and it works and it, it does, but you know, so like, uh, Ashtanga was founded by, and I might butcher this name, K. Patavi Choice. Uh, and he was born in 1915, died in 2009. Uh, he was one who created this entire branch of yoga and yeah i mean he's a fucking rapist i mean the guy was was known and had all kinds of uh shit come out about you know how he was trying to make different kind of adjustments uh for women than with men and there was a lot of shit that comes out about uh women coming out and, and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about uh in the, the early 90s and 2000s, so prior to the Me Too movement, uh, even though a lot more of this came out as a response to Me Too, of people who just kind of like accepted all this shit and just accepted that, you know, this guy was talking about nonviolence and everything, but he was willing to physically harm people to get them in various yoga poses because he said, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and... You know, this is a guy who didn't call himself a guru, and I mean, he he might have set the stage for a number of people since, uh, but he 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 became the blueprint, and so you have that. You have uh, Bikram Choudhury, who was born in 1944. He's still alive. He was the founder of Bikram Yoga, which is hot yoga or yoga done in uh, 104 degrees or more, and again. This is a guy who who created this whole thing that is just really kind of taken for granted and really kind of assumed to be as like, oh, this is a natural part of yoga. This is this is this is new shit. This is not old shit. It's just playing on it to kind of normalize it. And again, the guy at the center of it is a sexual predator. Uh, and it, you know, this just kind of goes on more and more. Uh, again, another person. John Friend, who was a follower follower of uh, the Ashtanga brand of yoga, started a brand called Anasara, 
which, you know, so the guy, just to, to give you a little feel for him, uh, he was starting to teach yoga part time while he was working at a finan- as a financial analyst. And I, I guess he started the practicing Ashtanga professionally, I think around 1984. I'm sorry, I read about this stuff. I'm just trying to catch up with it. But um, then he had, he had founded up this other style. And again, time after time, he's accused of being involved in all these different Ponzi schemes. And he had done this very same kind of stuff as this uh, next man cult had done where he had gotten people to uh, run their funds through him and then run them dry. He was scamming people left and right, and there was a lot of accusations that come out about him uh, sexually and in terms of sexual assault. And, yeah, I mean, this is this is just this is just me looking briefly. Um, and, and at the time of the Me Too movement, uh, there were people within the yoga community who had, had started to put out a call. It's like, why, why are we allowing sexual predators in this realm? Why are we accepting because of the basic guru premise of yoga and supposed to be about mind and body and soul and being free yourself and yeah, yeah, all this kind of horseshit. Why are we creating a haven for sexual predators? Uh, and you could ask that about a lot of things in particular, but when this came out, I mean, they're talking about immediately hundreds and hundreds of calls about yogis and people like that being brought up and saying it's like, oh shit. Yeah. I mean, when I put this stuff together, yeah, I mean, this, this is, these are sexual predators. These are, these are things that happened that were way over the line. And you know, it, it makes it worse. Cause it's, again, this whole idea is like, we're, we're here to help you. We're healthy. I mean, some of these, these methods that they're supposed to be doing are specifically targeted at, releasing severe PTSD or severe emotional trauma. And again, I mean, this is kind of the bullshit of, of the therapist world is like to, to isolate you and say, it's like, I'm going to fix you. We're going to have this way of fixing you. And it just feeds into this predatory system of one believing that all the things that have happened to you are, are somehow you're responsible for, and you're capable of just, you know, dealing with isolated, um, versus, in a communal setting or actually with, with actual consequences for people who cause these circumstances or cause this breaking. Uh, but there's just so many different ways that this, this kind of goes out and it's, it's not hard when you start going through this stuff to, um, define just continually more and more examples of it. And that's where it starts to become a little more prevalent when you start realizing that some of these things that we want to believe are, uh, extraordinary are really damn common. And this is the way that civilization functions. This is the way that civilizers function. This is the way that programmers function. And we know, uh, it, it like at this point, kind of famously, like Mark Zuckerberg started uh, the Facebook because he wanted to stalk people who had denied him. Uh, and that's, that's changed our reality. That has changed the entire way that we deal with the world, having that particular platform available but we still do it we still normalize it we still accept this like okay well this is where this kind of shit comes from and no matter how good something looks most of the time the the undercurrent of it is pretty fucking gnarly um and even if you want to look at something like uh free the nipple free the nipple which is a huge campaign and and a rightful campaign to say it's like 
you know, men's nipples are fair game. Women's nipples are always sexualized and blah, blah, kind of a whole thing about nudity and just the overall sexualization of, of everything about women and patriarchal reductionism. You mean important stuff, but the guy who founded the go topless day movement, uh, that spurred free the nipple it looks like he's been scrubbed a little bit is this guy, um, Clyde Vorlorn, who's a real fucking piece of work. Uh, started realism. Uh, I'm sure I'm, I might be saying that wrong, but it's this, this whole thing about the guy who he starts calling himself God and Jesus Elohim. And I don't know. It's all this shit about aliens. Um, you know, but it's kind of the similar stuff that, that comes out. But I mean, again, my point isn't to say it's like, look at this as just totally exceptional, but it's like between behind the supposedly liberatory innocuous kind of thing. There's this guy that's really fucked up. And, you know, just another example of that is there's the, the farm, which is a huge commune. It was like the sixties. They famously kind of just drove out to a spot. I think it's in Tennessee. Um, and just, just all these hippies back to land hippies just stopped and said, okay, we're going to buy this land and we're going to build this thing. And I, I had known a couple of people who grew up there um, when I was a teenager and, you know, it's for being this, this total hippie commune thing and most famously known amongst vegans because it had a really famous vegan cookbook. Uh, both people I knew were molested as children many times by a lot of these people. And, you know, looking even at the anarchist world and looking at the post-left, looking at a Joda or this magazine, Anarchy, a Journal of Desired Arm, there was this branch for a while in the early 90s, and it continued on where it was pro-Nambla. And uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson, also Hakim Bay, also known as Hakim Bay, I mean, he wrote fucking poems for Nambla newsletters. Uh, you know, at, at what point is there kind of a safety from, from this really predatory way of interacting with the world and people just willing to play along with, with some minor glimpse of truth and some minor glimpse of, of realization and not just take it to this really disgusting point. And I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't see a, a floor to it. And that fucking terrifies me. I mean, that's, that's insane. This is an insane way of interacting with the world and interacting with other people. But it's just, it, it constantly happens and you can see people get so close and they can get little glimpses of like these releases and these, these ways of trying to talk about things in a way that should feel freeing, should feel liberating. And then they just turn it into this horribly disgusting and vile thing and use it. And it has to do with predatory relationships. It has to do with perpetuating the cycle of breaking people and using them. And that's where it comes in. And that's why you can get these extreme examples of it. And if you dig on anything, you can find plenty of them. But, you know, this this stuff kind of comes from a particular place. And, you know, lately, um, it's been kind of coming up again, as it normally does. But there's all this shit right now with Operation Werewolf and the Wolves of Vinland. Um, all these, these supposed like men's group and, you know, might, might make right kind of shit. Um, and I got really upset and I was working on some other stuff. I, I just got pissed off really. Cause in, in 99, whenever the green anarchist movement was, was 
really behind a lot of fires in the streets and talking about um, the November 30th uh, anti-WTO actions and um, riots that happened in Seattle. And then the the global movement that was behind that and the global movement that expanded with it, uh, Green Anarchy was really kind of a, a huge part of pushing all of that. Um, you know, in 2003 in Genoa, there was huge riots there and the I think the prime minister, the vice prime minister of, of Italy so the riots in Genoa were caused were the fault of John Zerzan, which was you know kind of a huge compliment for him and well deserved. But underneath all of that, there was there was a couple movies that we felt kind of helped push things along, and one of them was Fight Club, and it was based on the book by Chuck Palahniuk, naturally. And uh, I was I was a fan of Chuck's first three novels, um, and for us at the time, and even still. You know, you looked at Fight Club as is uh, allegorical in a lot of ways, and you know, I knew a few people in the anarchist world that would talk about you know having fight clubs and things like that, and but most of us, I think, saw it as like you know, this is just an allegory, this is just a story, this is just a way of relating. It's like the idea of you know destroying something beautiful, or the idea of just physically feeling pain instead of suppressing it, had kind of a liberatory thing. I had. You know, I, I wonder about it, and I kind of go back to it, and I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've gone off the rails with Chuck. Uh, I don't think his writing is, is, like, the next two books were okay, and then it just goes downhill from there. I saw him talk around that, you know, early 2000s, and I was horribly unimpressed. And it just seemed like, you know, these were kind of existential ideas that he liked that had a lot of grip to him and a lot of kind of morbid curiosity behind him, and he was willing to play with, but not things he, he took seriously or would have taken necessarily in the direction that any of us in the anarchist world were. Uh, but the resurgence of that, on the other hand, has come through Jack Donovan and his, his pro-men's group, white supremacist bullshit, and Paul Wagner and uh, Wolves of Vinland, uh, Operation Werewolf kind of shit. And uh, I know that um, Chuck is aware that these people have been using his books and saying it's like this is this is something that we feed on, something that we relate to, and this was the basis of it. In fact, with a lot of shit with Operation Werewolf and Wolves of Vinland, was built around having these fight clubs, like physically having these fight clubs, and just preying on this really kind of like primordial sense of something is missing to say, well, this book was right. And again, there's a there's a thing throughout the book and throughout the movie where he's talking about I am Jack's angry spleen or I am Jack's blah 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 and the, actually the name Jack Donovan comes is is a homage to to that whole deal, um, which is disappointing. But you see, is like the the overarching impact that that book had amongst you know writing anarchists versus what it seems to be having in terms of entitled uh, white male rage you know, it's, it's surpassed that. And I don't know if Chuck has necessarily done a whole lot to, to stall it. And I don't know if he feels the need to, but you can, you can see how that kind of stuff comes in. And again, this is a part of that kind of guru complex is about trying to scrape the bottom. And they really like, especially with Paul Wagner and the werewolf stuff, it's freakish how much they've tried to make it play on like a punk anarcho crusty kind of aesthetics. Uh, in fact, I am, dying over Paul Wagner's 2018 book Werewolf Manifesto because it's awful like all the things that we've learned about layout um, from doing zines whenever 
fonts started becoming an option, you know, they just kind of took it. And uh, he he's probably thinks he's very clever. That is copyright, all rights reserved by might. Um, and just, you know, I mean, this stuff looks like utter shit. And it, the fact that it looks like some punk thing is obviously been pretty useful because a lot of people who are into punk and hardcore and were at one point anarchists or involved in earth liberation, animal liberation, uh, related ideas or whatever movements seem to be kind of falling for this stuff. And it's because it plays in this whole like tough boy thing. And, uh, Jack Donovan is kind of the worst of it. And so his, his use his successful use of these same kind of ideas or the same, like toying with these same notions like fight club. I mean, that's, that's hard because it is something that I, you know, I never put a lot of weight in, but I did put some trust in It's like, okay, this was a thing that would, that could explain it. This was a, this was clearly there's issues with consumerism and everything. Um, I thought it was good at getting people to, to the front door a little. Uh, and then you see how, people like Jack and Paul have walked through it and it's like, fuck. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go again. Here's another guru who just like walked along the bottom and took all this stuff is, is not just like we need to question our ideas of masculinity or our ideas of patriarchy in a way that that could potentially liberate. They're like, you know, we just need to double down. Um, and you can see kind of like when you, when you think about a book, the book and the movie of fight club, through that context, it's like, oh shit, it's pretty damn disappointing. Like, you know, he didn't want to fight his dad because he was talking about fighting patriarchy. He wanted to fight dad because, you know, his dad let him be raised by women and women made him weak, which Jack Donovan is a, a fucking rabbit hole on. <laughs> and um, you go on in depth, and I mean, he's like, he's, he's gay and he's totally against gay culture because he thinks it's demasculating just insane level of misogyny. Um, and it, it's not like a, a surprise and he's, you know, he's very much like pro white ethnostate and, um, and it, it is concerning. I mean, so it's like, I, I got some quotes pulled up here. Uh, and this, this is from, you know, kind of a main internet quote site. Uh, this is like, when, you know, there's all kinds of shit like this that just collects whatever people find important or, or, whatever people submit as being um, good or worthy. And these quotes are awful. Like this should be like, here's the evidence against them. And instead it's like, here you go. So I'll just read a few. White guilt is more of a sanctioned social convention than a genuine emotional experience. It's a form of theatrical empathy that's socially and financially rewarded. When you learn to say, and perhaps even believe the right things about race doors are open for you. When you say the wrong things, those doors slam shut. Then the gossips and church ladies will shame you publicly, demand that you be fired from your job and use every avenue available to them to coerce a confession, a public apology, and a staged conversion that contributes to their progressive narrative. Like, wow. All right. It's like you just want to fucking punch the guy in the face and say, yeah, this is why right, right now in the news, uh, it's being discussed. A, a white cop broke into a black man's apartment and shot him. Um, has given many stories for why that happened. Many stories about how that came to be. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's the anomaly is that she's actually potentially facing charges, but still, it was a, a news flash 
that I was like, well, when they broke into his apartment or they searched his apartment, he had weed. So who's to say who's at fault? It was fucking obvious who's at fault. They just, you know, there's, there's no situation where that's not just straight up murder or execution. Um, but to think that there's kind of this, these two worlds coexist where he's saying that, uh, you, you know, you have to play nice and you have to play PC or whatever. And then you get rewarded for appearing not to be PC. It's like, dude, who are you talking to? Like, I, I get what you're playing on. I get how these people work. And again, this is the guru thing right here. People who feel guilty about having any recognition of what entitlement entails feel bad that they're, you know, they're like, well, why do I have to feel bad about it? It's like, well, you just need to be fucking aware of it and do something about it and recognize that the rest of the world is facing all this other shit because, because of this power dynamic, the very least don't fucking deny it. And then this guy, it's like, did you really see this way? But of course he's, he's playing along with neo-Nazis. I mean, he's, he's in that realm. He's in that entire thing. And as much as these people want to say, they're not neo-Nazis or not this or not that I'll get the Wagoner stuff in a second here. Like it's like, no, you fucking are. And that's what makes it really funny is they kind of play on this whole might makes right thing. And it's like, uh, we're going to speak our truth and it's all this shit. And here's another one. Violence is the gold standard, the reserve that guarantees order. In actuality, it is better than a gold standard because violence is universal value. Violence transcends the quirks of philosophy, religion, technology, and culture. It's time to quit worrying and learn to love the battle axe. History teaches us that if we don't, someone else will. It's cool. That one's filed under philosophy. He's a very enlightened man. But yeah, no, it's sociopath shit right there. Um, and another, when someone tells a man to be a man, they mean that there is a way to be a man. A man is not just a thing to be. It is also a way to be a path to follow and a way to walk. Some try and make manhood mean everything. Other believes that others believe that it means nothing at all. Being good at being a man can't mean everything. And it has always meant something. This is why I hate philosophy because you could just kind of say crazy shit, but this one gets a little more to it. Civilization comes at a cost of manliness. It comes as a cost of wildness, of risk, of strife. It comes at a cost of strength, of courage, of mastery. It comes at a cost of honor. Increased civilization exacts a toll on virility, forcing manliness into further redoubts of vicariousness and abstraction. So that's another point uh, with the Wagner stuff and with Donovan stuff is that they have played on anti-civ and they have played on rewilding. Uh, and all this kind of crazy shit again, trying to get closer, trying to play on it. But then it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? At what point has increased civilization has meant furthering manliness into further doubts of vicariousness and abstraction. Patriarchy is the embodiment of male worship at the expense of everybody else and powerful males. It is might makes right. The entirety of civilization, like I don't know what view of civilization you have where it's like, well, it's about upholding women. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And all these people are against egalitarianism and equality and blah, blah. So it's just like, what are you talking about? Even in terms of wildness, they're not talking about the same thing I'd be talking about, which is to be wild and to, to be a part of like the community of wildness. But, you know, they're talking about barbarism and just might makes right. And this is all this very socio-biological men are big and strong and this is what we do. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's weak shit. I mean, this shit just 
oozes such toxic masculinity in the worst forms. Like, I, I, I've got to be honest, I struggle with how to read this, which part of me wants to read it like kind of WWF Hulk Hogan kind of shit just because it's, it's, it's copying to it and it's basically the same thing. There's part of me that wants to read it while I'm crying because I think that's probably how a lot of this was written. There's part of me that just wants to, you know, just kind of be an asshole and read it in an upbeat way as I have because that's the only way I can get through it is to try and find some humor in the ridiculousness of this fucking bullshit. Like, you know, I, I, there is a lot that needs to be talked about, about, you know, the ideas of masculinity, ideas of femininity. And it's part of that whole slew of like, how do you relate to other people? And one is like, well, you don't say things exactly like this. Another Donovan quote, strength, courage, mastery, and honor are the alpha virtues of men all over the world. They're the fundamental virtues of men because without them, no higher virtues can be entertained. You need to be alive to philosophize. You can add to these virtues and you can create rules and moral codes to govern them. But if you remove them from the equation altogether, you aren't just leaving behind the virtues that are specific to men. You're abandoning the virtues that make civilization possible. To which I say, fucking good. We need to abandon the virtues that make civilization possible because those underlying virtues are fucking breaking people. You have to be broken to make civilization possible. Abandon it. Yeah, you can do it. Like it's that, that easy. Uh, oh God. But this stuff, uh, so it's so insane. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard to dive into it without just wanting to go full bore at it. And there's, there's a reason why I even bring in this stuff up is that there's, there's a way of functioning in the world, the world that social media has made possible, that news comments and uh, YouTube and all these platforms have made possible, and that is the trolling. Um, and I've, I've poked some holes in the, the Wolves of Finland stuff and just make jokes. I mean, because for the most part, it's a fucking joke to me. I don't take this shit, like, you know, whatever. You want to be a bunch of strong boys and boys in Virginia and shit. Like, for the most part, it's seemingly kind of just some garbage thing, and then... Uh, as we all have seen and all have known, fascism has gotten a massive reboot, a massive kick in the ass, and now these people, you know, they're they are killing people and getting away with it, and they are involved in, in extremely, like proudly involved in extreme acts of violence to propagate this misogynistic white male bullshit fantasy of being a barbarian or whatever the fuck it is they think they are. Um, it can't be ignored and it can't be denied, but it, it, it feeds into this and it's important for me to keep making this point. This is what happens whenever we are broken and searching and somebody steps in to say, I'm going to fill that need. And I understand the anger, but the direction that they take this shit is insane. And so for all of them, one of the, the central things about all this shit is, is about, you know, virtues of, of manliness or whatever. And the idea of right makes right or might makes right and all this shit. And, um, the idea that like you can be the best male you can be by being strong. Uh, and the, the way that it's written is all really, really predatory. Um, and it is meant to just kind of feed into this thing. And there's, there's no question about it. I mean, that's the difference about some of this stuff, like with the Nixium kind of cult, um, and some of those things like that, like the, the power structure of it was, not given at an early level. The entire buildup 
was to make it seem like, okay, this guy who, who literally called himself Vanguard was a spiritual leader that you would have to succumb to. And then you go through many stages and then you get to this point where it's like, okay, I'm willing to, to give everything to this guy because he knows what he's talking about. And, you know, you can look at that as well when you're, you're talking about like somebody like Derek Jensen, whenever he was building up his own cult and the, uh, the whole deep green resistance thing, which actually had waivers involved and actually had members involved to be a part of the forum. But part of being the forum was saying like, what are you willing to do for Derek? Give us a scenario or walk us through a scenario in which, um, how would you respond to taking down civilization basically on Derek's prompting? How are you going to spend, I think it's like five to 10 hours a week or a month promoting Derek's work what part of Derek's books most impacted you. So, I mean, just kind of like, it's not so subtle. It's, it's not like it's, it's a mystery. It's not like anything like that is, is hidden, but at the same time, like the innate power structure of it was just totally leached through this idea of like, we're helping you, like we're getting you to this point. And of course the entire thing bled into this crazy power structure and just like in an insane trail of books to follow this this stuff the werewolf stuff is the opposite it's alpha male is what you're supposed to be and this whole idea in which it's, again is it's a i'm sure i've said it before i can't say it enough the whole alpha male thing is some fucking bullshit kind of stuff or, or at least our understanding of it is is has no biological basis or no basis in understanding how their social animals work it's just a reiteration of hierarchical bullshit that we've been taught and conditioned with um but it, it's not like hidden it's it's totally a thing here and it's it's right up front or at least it is part of the time so in uh i mean even looking at something like operation werewolf the complete transmission that's a book wagner put out i think i think a couple of years ago like i guess it's probably a picture of him uh it's the back of some dude holding a skull up and he's got a hoodie with a bunch of shit painted on it and the hood is like a white bright symbol with four swastikas in it um and I mean, there's all this kind of shit throughout. I mean, they constantly talk about the white ethno state and they constantly talk about all this shit and it's all about power. But again, they, they, it's, it's so chicken shit. It's so bullshit. Uh, and they, you know, I'll read it a little bit just before I get back to the troll thing. But, uh, this is from his newest book, which is werewolf manifesto. Operation werewolf is a physical culture. We have used the term militant strength culture in the past and have done so without an intention of irony. As in all things, we have a sense of humor and love to laugh, but we are not ironic. Irony is the last passion of the weakest men, never having to stand up for anything, never having to display or develop conviction. What we mean by militant strength culture can be summed up simply in looking at the words that make up the phrase. Militant aggressive, often favoring extreme methods. We pursue physical strength as an act of devotion with religious dedication. Portions of our day are given over to the pursuit of physical strength through training with weights, calisthenics, martial arts, and so on, just as someone else might say their prayers or go to church. This is our church, and every rep a prayer to the eternal gods of of iron and blood. Our life is a ritual, and we make... And so we make every place holy that is good and important to us. Strength may be self-explanatory, but we also believe that physical training is never just physical. We believe more that muscle and tendon, when we exert ourselves and push our bodies and will to this breaking point, all in the search for that elusive goal of, quote, more. Like the mysteries contained with the Urun Uraz or Aurochs, 
we seek to develop the tenacity, persistence, and intensity of the wild bull. Staying power, immovability, anti-fragile, call it what you like. We are, train- we are training not simply for one situation or another, but to excel at life itself. And yet, even when you look at the physical pages in this, you can see they have excelled at nothing. Hate to be the ones to tell them, but I'm also happy to be the ones to tell them. You guys are fucking failures. Um, and there's, there's a lot of quotes. Again, like I said, I, I struggle with even how to read this shit because it is awful. Um, but this is more of the, you know, the rah-rah kind of stuff. Um, and this is from Operation Werewolf. We must have total life reform. I'm sorry. We must have total life reform. Our program must call to the strength principle within us and stir it to wild action. This must take place on a physical plane first. In the world today, thinking is easy and often replaces action entirely. Make of your body a weapon, a thunder chariot for the will and intellect. In the doing of this task, your will, capital W, shall continuously be forged and reforged, the dross and slag driven from it, hardening alongside your muscle, bad habits cast aside, poor excuses left to bleed out in the dust. You will become, capital B, whatever it is you desire, capital D, and that is the great work, capital G, capital W, iron and blood. So, there's parts of this that just genuinely, it's like, this is, this is just WWF. Um, Thunder Chariot for the will and intellect is, um, credit, credit where it's due, is literary gold. It's just, you know, this Chuck might have blessed it and sprinkled a little magic on it um, in particular. But for all this talk about we are men and strong and this is what we do, brother. Um, yeah, they're so fucking full of shit. And the troll army that comes behind, and I'm sure it'll come behind this episode as well, is the the complete and utter bullshit of just all their followers just going to this thing of trying to play this whole troll game of like, you keep saying that these guys are Nazis or you keep saying that they're going after this and that. They're more anti-civ than you are. They're more this and that than you are. And, you know, they try to play this whole thing uh, where, you know, the first step is, you just got this all wrong. You don't understand the runes. You don't understand the meaning. You don't understand the esoteric blah, blah, blah. And you're just nothing. And then as soon as you mock that, they have, they, they have for all their, their talk about humility or all their talk about strength and everything, these guys can be cut down in a fucking second and they should be cut down every single time. Uh, they have this temper tantrum. It's just like, you fucking pussy, blah, blah, blah. All this kind of shit. And just like, you don't understand. You're not a real man. I was like, I don't, I don't care about that. <laughs> like whatever, if this is your definition, if this is what you think is to be a man is to get as big as you possibly can get and get roided out and have some fucking fight club fuck fest with your friends. Like cool. I'm not interested. Take a look at a hunter gatherer man. Take a look at a hunter gatherer woman, like a fucking Kung bow has a 110 pound draw. Like a, that's, that's massive. Do you see any of those dudes look like they're roided out? Do you see any of the women who are carrying 150, 200 pounds of weight on their head or neck or back while carrying a child? Do they look all jacked? It's like, no, this is some civilized bullshit. Come on, get the fuck off it. Like, I, I'm, I'm just not, I don't care about that stuff. And I think toxic masculinity is a massive issue. Uh, and so it's like when shows like this try to punk you on it, it's just, 
ridiculous and just kind of laughable to me. Uh, but it does work on a lot of people. It does, it does seem to work and people do tend to fall for it and do tend to kind of go back into this whole cult thing of saying, it's like, this is how I do it. This is how I regain myself. This is how I regain my meaning. If I can be, make my body a weapon, which is ridiculous. Um, then like, then I have it, then I've got it. And I've got this whole thing. And it's like, well, the whole thing is really about obedience to power structure and trying to look like some fucking CrossFit for racists or just like a motorcycle gang without motorcycles. I don't know what it is supposed to be. Um, but you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's playing on punk aesthetics and trying to cop a bunch of anarchists lit and just take it in this ridiculous direction. But again, it's just another example. And that's, that's what this is all about. Civilization and domestication require us to be broken. And, there are scraps that are left behind in that process. And there's a lot of open ends and a lot of wounds that we have because of this process that we don't have the means to address. And what ends up happening is, is that some group, some company, some cult, some guru, whatever form they might take, it might not look as extreme as Vanguard or it might not look as extreme as Jack Donovan or it might not it might be as subtle as, as Jensen and his ridiculous sweaters or something like that. Or even Daniel Vitalis and his, $200 bottles of, of elk antler musk or whatever, whatever form it takes. If you do not address these core issues about what is missing in our lives, if we do not understand what domestication is doing and how domestication functions, all of those pieces are there and it is fruit that is ripe for groups like this to come in and prey upon. And that is why when we talk about anarcho primitivism, we talk about primal anarchy we explicitly talk about not being ideological, about not having a blueprint for the world. And it's not because we don't know shit. I mean, at this point, so much is documented about civilization that we could go on forever just digging at all the stuff we already have access to or we already have in fragments and piecing it all together that we could say is like, okay, this is how these things function. But the reality of it is, is the reason hunter-gatherer societies function, the reason primal anarchy works is not because there was a blueprint it was because it was built around the idea of understanding that how things function and how things do not function. How do you address the hard parts about existence and how do you deal with that as a community and how do you breed people within a context to be strong enough that they don't have to worry about being weak, that they don't have to sit here and worry or feel like oh, somebody's going to punk them by calling them a coward or pathetic or whatever and just having it so people could feel their place in the world and understand it without getting stuck into these all ex existential crises. And so that's why this part is blank. That's why we do not fill that in. You cannot be handed that. And it's not that any of us have all the answers or have everything figured out. We're obviously still in it. I mean, I'm talking in a microphone facing a wall into a computer that I'm going to post on the internet. It's not like I fucking know what I'm saying. It's not like I've, I've got it totally figured out. I just know some shit because I spent my time looking at it and I know enough to say, Anybody who tells you they have it figured out is full of shit. They don't know what they're doing. They're just preying on you. That's all there is to it. And if they have programs that cost money, if they have like like real money, like investments, not like, you know, donate 10 bucks for a plant walk or, you know, do spend a hundred bucks to go to a place for a week or something. Like, you know, thousands of dollars are taking out life mortgages and just anything like that. Um, or, you know, a mega church telling you to plant your seeds of donations or pay tithe. 
anybody who's trying to sell you on that stuff isn't going to help you. They don't have your interest in mind. They're just playing on a system they know exists and a dynamic they know they can take advantage of. It's the big man role with the chief's power. That's all it is. These are filling in the blanks that civilization creates because domestication is innately breaking us. And nobody, nobody can help you out of that mess but yourself and trying to figure it out. But yourself, you as a person, you exist within this world. And that's the fucking point. That's the whole thing here. Wildness still exists. Oh, the entire world that we are meant to ignore and meant to not see still exists. And that's why... You know, when I talk about wildness or I talk about a lot of these concepts, I make an explicit effort not to define them. And it's not to create this kind of ambiguous truth or whatever. It's just to say it's like this is this is a name I'm giving to a series of relationships and this is these are little snapshots of my relationship with it and things that I've learned in the process. And then it's like, okay, this is what when when indigenous people were talking about this, when our gatherers are talking about this, this this is what I think they meant. This is what I seem to understand. And there's no way that that can be described to you any other way than to experience it yourself and to share that experience with other beings, with other animals, with other species, with plants, with trees. You have to get into it. It's not something you can just think through. This isn't a problem that you're going to take a seminar and come out on the other side and be okay. This requires healing, and it is a process. That's why we talk about rewilding as a process. It's like domestication. It's going to be an ongoing thing and there's a lot to work through and the more you get into it, the harder it can be at times. So I don't I don't have solutions for how to how to deal with the gurus aside from to completely undermine everything about the domestication process. I you know, is are are gurus a bigger threat than anything else in civilization, any priest or any politician or anything like that? They're all the same to me. And, you know, ridicule them, mock them, take them down a peg, call it out as you need to. But if you see people in your life that are being drawn to this, it doesn't help to sit there and say like, oh, well, they're just falling for that shit. Because all of us do. All of us have something or another that we we gravitate to for one reason or another, that we justify for one reason or another. And it's all in scales. And there's, there's no point in getting stuck in it. There's no point in saying it's like this is where it's at. It's just saying... At base, when people fall for this stuff, there is a good core to it, and that is that human nature. That is that hunter-gatherer within all of us that is not happy. It just just can't handle civilized living. It can't handle this way of being that has no meaning and no depth to it, and they're searching for something. It is a cry for help, and that's all it is. And those people, the gurus know it, and that's why they do what they do, and that's why it works the way it does. So don't just walk away from it. Don't just shame them. Don't just say it's like they go into the shit. They f- they probably mean well. They probably do. And they might be bad people. I mean, that um, that's the basis of it too. It, it, domestication breaks us all and sometimes it's, it's irreparable. But it doesn't help to sit here and just say, I'm better than these people because I don't fall for this or I don't fall for that. We're, we're not. And we all do fall for it in one way or another. But just understand what it is. This is how broken people interact with the world and when everything else is taken from you, somebody will try to pick up those pieces, and it's usually for the worst. So just anything you can do to continually undermine that process and to continually draw these points out 
is vital and to actually build community and to actually get out in the world and bring people out with you and not just say like, what can I do for myself? But how does this function and how do we build community? These are, these are hard questions. It's not some simple hippie thing. And it certainly as fuck isn't going out in the middle of Tennessee and starting a uh, hippie commune. That's going to end up being a vegan cookbook bestseller and also a place where children get molested. You know, there's a lot of work to do. So you just have to do it. That's all there is to it. It has to be confronted and it has to be dealt with. So for whatever that's worth, that's my opinion. I'm not a guru. I'm not a professional. Uh, it's not on my business card. I lack sashes, uh, intently so. And um, yeah, if anybody tells you otherwise, punch them in the throat. That's all there is to it. So that concludes that episode. Thank you for listening. Again, primalanarchy.org is the website. Uh, also, if you go on there, there is the support tab, which gives the option of donating through Patreon or donating through PayPal. All that stuff is very helpful. More than anything, what helps is getting feedback, people sharing this, talking about it, and telling their friends about it, getting people to listen to it. Um, again, you can download episodes, and then I'm working on getting it on all the podcast platforms as I learn how to do so. Um, the my, main, my newest book is Gathered Demands. You can buy that at blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, the journal that I am a founding co-editor of is Black and Green Review. Issue number six is going to be out this fall slash winter and is getting closer. And at blackandgreenreview.org, you'll also find more information about that. If you're curious about myself or my projects, kevintucker.org is my website. If you had comments, blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Again, that is blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Or you can send a letter to Black and Green, P.O. Box 402. Salem, Missouri, 65560. And I appreciate it. And I will talk to you next time. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is M1, M A Uno, M A Della Gente, Comprende Intende. You feel me? I'm one half a dead press. To tell it like it is, everything is political, rap duo. Here holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to the Rebel Beat. The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms.